I invite you to join me in Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 20 as we continue our way through the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Well, last week, as we gathered together, we considered a few of Jesus' parables as he taught again and again about the kingdom of God. Since then, a scene that we missed between last week and this week's passage found Jesus displaying his power in the midst of a wild storm. Today, in our text, we're going to encounter a wild man and learn more about the kingdom of God. Now, today's story will bring us up against demons against the demonic, and that's a subject that makes a lot of people incredibly uncomfortable. And let's admit it, we don't know for sure what to think about this when we come upon these scenes. So we might ask ourselves, what does this mean, and what does this not mean? Well, one thing it does mean is that Jesus did believe in the existence of demonic forces. We see him encounter them through the gospel. We see his power come up against theirs, and so we know that this is true. But I think it doesn't mean that there is a demon behind every bush. There's a bit of a mystery here, and we try and figure out what we're supposed to take away from each of the stories that brings this material to us. One of the things that we like to do as Christians is build systematic theologies about things. And so we encounter something like the demonic, and we think, okay, how are we going to build this thing out? How are we going to fully understand these things so that we understand everything about this in the world? And yet, there's nothing systematic about the way the scriptures present the topic of the demonic. We know that they are there. We know there are powers at work in the world. But we don't know fully how to construct those together into a systematic theology. And so... My encouragement to us as we make our way through this gospel and this morning as we look at Mark chapter 5 is that we receive just what the story presents to us. That we don't build it into something it's not meant to be, but we instead see what Mark is sharing with us, what Jesus is doing and what he's sharing with the people so that we can fully understand more about our God without building these stories into something that they aren't. So join me now in Mark chapter 5. I'll be reading through verses 1 to 20, beginning in verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been chained, hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. Jesus gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. 
When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Please pray with me. Lord God, we are so thankful to be gathered here in this space today. We are so thankful for your presence here with us. We're thankful as well for the gift of scripture. We're thankful for these snapshots of ministry from the gospel of Mark. In these next few minutes, as we explore what these verses have to teach us, we need your help. We need your insight. We need your discernment. We need your understanding. Some of these subject matters are foreign to us, and we're curious to know what we should take away. So in these next few minutes, please give each of us eyes to see just what you want us to see. Give us hearts that are soft and ready to receive what you choose to reveal. And give us conviction that is strong so we can apply what we see and understand to the way we live every day. I pray all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, there's a lot going on in these 20 verses. We have to admit it, right? And what I see as I look at kind of at the overview of the verses is that Jesus has three critical encounters in today's passage. And I want us to take just a few moments to consider each one of them. The first of his critical encounters is with a whole bunch of demons. A whole bunch of demons. And I say a whole bunch because though legion usually means 6,000 soldiers, it had idiomatic usage in Jesus' day. It meant a whole bunch of something when you ran up against a legion. And these demons self-identified to Jesus as legion. These demons were the ones who found Jesus. Jesus steps off the boat, and this man runs up to Jesus. It seems at first as if maybe there's an attack that's going to take place. And yet then the man falls on his knees before Jesus. What are they doing? Are they going to worship Jesus? Are they going to attack Jesus? Well, we do hear fighting words, a shout, in fact, that comes from the man to Jesus, demanding that he leave them alone, demanding that he leave the area. Essentially, what are you doing here? We have the clear sense that these demons knew exactly who Jesus was. They didn't embrace him as Messiah, perhaps, but they knew that he was divine, and they knew that their power was no match for his. Once Jesus commands them to leave this man, the writing's on the wall. They know that they will be leaving, but they choose to negotiate, and they beg Jesus, send us into those pigs. And for some reason, Jesus agrees. They enter into these 2,000 pigs, willingly, And the pigs stampede into the water and they're drowned. This is one of those points in the story where I think, what are we supposed to take away from this? 2,000 pigs run down into the lake and drown. What does that mean? Does that mean that the demons are now dead as well? Does that mean the demons have been set free so they can wander the land and find someone else to torment? Does it mean that the demons have simply returned to where they came from originally? I have no idea. You have no idea either. Mark didn't think we needed to know anything about that. Why? Why wasn't there an explanation? We have questions that we want answered here. I think the why has to do with the significance of what Mark is trying to communicate. 
There was a power clash that took place here between the demonic and Jesus, and Jesus' power was supreme. Jesus was the one who won, and knowing exactly what happens to the demons next is something that's not relevant to what Mark is trying to teach us about our Savior. And the significant piece is that this man is now free, and we'll return to him in just a moment. Jesus' next critical encounter is with a nervous bunch of people. It starts with just those who were there tending to the pigs. As soon as those pigs die, they run off and they tell everyone they can find of what just took place. Now, I don't think that telling as they ran around doing it was a celebration. Oh, you guys come see this powerful man. They're probably angry. That was their livelihood, 2,000 pigs, and they're dead instantly because of Jesus, because of what he chose to do. So there's probably a lot of angst involved in this going and telling everyone what took place. So after they run and do that, there's soon a large bunch of nervous people gathered. And when they arrive, we're told they see this man dressed in his right mind and sitting before Jesus. That ought to be great news for them. Certainly, these people knew who this man was, or at least knew of this man. He had lived such a tortured life, they should be celebrating that he was now set free from what had been torturing him. But instead of celebrating, we're told they were afraid. There was the calming of the storm that we missed in between last week's text and this, and the same exact thing happens with the disciples. They're afraid when the storm is bearing down upon them, but if you look at the last verse of that story, they are afraid when Jesus calms the storm. The fear didn't go away automatically when the storm was calm because they're sitting in the midst of power. They can sense Jesus' power, and they just don't know what to do with it. What does this mean? Why were these people afraid? For the same reasons. They had encountered a power far beyond themselves. It made them uncomfortable. It made them nervous. They don't want trouble. And so it's their turn to beg. They beg Jesus to leave their region. The final critical encounter is with an eager believer. The eager believer is the man who has been set free from the torment of his demon possession. And verses 3 to 5 provide a vivid picture of the hopeless state of his previous life. He lived outside of town among the tombs in a graveyard. He would cry out day and night. He was cutting his own skin with the sharp rocks in the area. We could say he was beyond human help because we're told no one was strong enough to subdue him. And yet, Jesus set him free. Jesus gave him a brand new life. Jesus did what no one else could do. And I want you to notice something really significant about what Jesus does and how he chooses to do it. You see, Jesus freed this man from his torment without him contributing to the rescue in any way. Did you notice that? The demons wanted to leave and Jesus complied. But this man, he doesn't then walk up to Jesus, at least in Mark's telling, and say, uh, I'd like to repent of my sins. Or say, isn't there a prayer that I need to pray to receive you into my life? How do I make sure that I can go to heaven, Jesus? There's none of this dialogue. In this state where he has now been freed from his torment, Jesus simply restores him. And I believe this is a beautiful picture of grace. We are so bound to feeling like we participate in our own salvation. 
It was my decision. It was my prayer. It was me coming to my senses. It was me acting and choosing. But grace, grace enters into our life and restores us without the need of our own efforts, without our own accolades, without our own bragging. Now we have a chance once we come to faith to choose each day how we live that faith out. There is, there is uh, something required of us, but the redemption and the restoration of our souls, it comes at God's movement. It comes with the power of grace. And we should celebrate that. We shouldn't be saddened by that. We simply set our ego down. We realize that it's not about us. It's about God's love at work inside of us. And then the dance begins. Then the trust and the faith of every single day is laid out before us. I love the picture of grace at work here. And this man's experience of God's grace, of God's power changing everything. Well, now it was his turn to beg. And he didn't beg Jesus to leave. He begged to go with Jesus, to follow Jesus. He was ready to set down everything that he was, any connections he had back in town, and follow with Jesus and the rest of his disciples. And yet Jesus says no. Why does Jesus say no? Well, it's because there are more encounters to come. We saw three outlined in detail here, but this man now returns to his people, to his family and friends. He tells them everything he has experienced. And Mark tells us that as they learned what Jesus had done, all the people were amazed. Now one of the things that amazes me about this particular story is the way that it highlights the power of experience, of what people choose to experience. If you look at the screen right now, the experience of a tricycle is laid before us. And you're probably wondering, why am I showing Dean's toys up on the screen during the sermon? But this tricycle has become a powerful symbol for me as I've heard theologians outline the significance of the way in which our faith grows. Each of the wheels represents something. One of those back wheels represents tradition. The tradition of religion, the tradition of Christianity through all of the years. It's not all good but it does represent the power of tradition and its role in our lives. The second of the rear wheels of that, tri of that tricycle represents scripture, the gift of the scriptures that we have, inspired by God to teach us about the nature of God and the kingdom of God in this world. As I first came to faith, I was told that tradition was a little bit murky, be cautious around tradition, I was told scripture is the main thing, and if I'm honest, the model that I was given when I first came to faith was more like a unicycle than a tricycle. All you had to worry about was the scripture. Maybe tradition could help you sometimes, but that was it. And this third wheel, the front wheel, represents experience. Our experience in the world, our experience of God at work in other people, our experience of the way God visits us in day-to-day -day life and displays his power for us. I was told growing up as a Christian, don't mess with experience. Don't trust experience because experience brings our emotion into the matter. Experience can help us to veer off of the path, <coughs> excuse me, the path of scripture that we are called to stay upon. I was told by the leaders who discipled me and brought me up in the faith, you got to stay far and away away from that. Rely only on the other two. And yet those who advocate for this tricycle model of faith talk about experience being perhaps the most important. 
That front wheel is the one that steers the tricycle everywhere it goes. Now, take any one of these wheels away, and the tricycle doesn't work anymore. It doesn't roll in the right way. And so I want to tell you today, I value this model because I think it is the most effective way for us to grow in our faith. To take from tradition and the past everything of value so that we're sure to learn from the mistakes, but also be inspired by the faithfulness of people who have come before us. To hold tightly to the scriptures because what a gift they are. We need to be in these scriptures every single week in our worship, also in our personal lives because they reveal day in and day out more and more about our God. But do not forsake experience. Do not leave experience behind. Because God is ready and waiting in every day for each of us to teach us something new about who he is and what he wants to do in this world. We want to listen to those experiences. We want to open ourselves to those experiences. And I'm going to go one step further. We want to beg God for those experiences. The demons begged to be sent away. The people who experienced it all begged Jesus to be sent away. And this eager believer begged to be in the presence of Jesus. What would happen if we changed the way we experienced our God and begged God to reveal himself to us in fresh new ways, even ways that would make us nervous about his power and nervous about what he might choose to do with us? A number of years ago, I had a really powerful dream. Generally, I'm not much of a dreamer, but I had this powerful dream this evening, and of all places, this is a little bit embarrassing, I was just hanging out at Grossmont Center. And I know you're thinking, powerful dream at Grossmont Center? But I was sitting in the courtyard at Grossmont Center, and in the moment of this beautiful, beautiful day, I all of a sudden heard a large cracking sound. And I looked up into the sky, and the sky was cracking open above me. And everybody in this courtyard around me began screaming in terror. We didn't know what was going on. But I don't know why, but for some reason, I sensed this was not danger. This was God breaking through to us in this powerful and loving way. And I have this just tangible feeling of everyone panicking around me and me just standing up and screaming at the top of my lungs with joy. Like, come on, God, I want all of this. I want all of your power. I want anything you want to share with me right now. I, I, I long for this. I woke up from my dream screaming, but a, a joy screaming. And the moment that I woke up, I thought a little bit about what I was experiencing, and I was so sad, and I wanted to go back to sleep, wanted to go back into that dream, because I had to see what God had for me, what was coming next in that story. A couple days later, I was on a bike ride with my friend Dave, and I told him this story, because I could not get the story out of my mind. I would just have goosebumps every single time I would talk about it. And Dave, so much wiser than me, Dave just looks at me while we're riding along, and he says, have you asked God for more? Didn't even occur to me. Didn't even occur to me. Have I asked God for more? These days, I beg God for more. I beg God for dreams. I beg God to encounter people who will change me in that way. I beg God 
to reveal something brand new about himself to me every single day. I beg God to enter into my world, my life, my schedule in ways that are so powerful that it makes me nervous, but I'm not afraid because it's God. And God wants to transform me. He wants to transform you. He wants to open your faith to brand new ways of experiencing him all the days of your life, broadening that capacity like we talked about last week so that we then can lean deeper into him and we can invite the other people around us into that same experience. We were made for the experience of God and his power. May we beg him for more. Please pray with me. Lord God, we were made for you. And through your grace, you have lovingly drawn us into your family. You've made us yours. You've shown us the building blocks of faith, what it is to trust in you, what it is to be forgiven of sin, what it is to be refreshed and restored, placed in community. You've shown all of these things to us. We've pulled from tradition and what it can teach us. We make ourselves students of scripture, desiring at each encounter to learn more about who you are. And now we lay ourselves before you we ask, we beg for a grander experience of you, a powerful experience of you that is not just power, but loving power. Please, break through into these lives. Break through into our calendars. Break through into our routine. Our experience of you is not limited to a sanctuary. You are everywhere. Meet us in all of those places. Meet us in the most traumatic of moments. Meet us in the most mundane. But please, give us eyes, give us ears. Open us to the experience of you that we might draw nearer to you than ever. I pray all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.